This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Last week, four members of Congress sent a letter to the Department of Justice to, quote, declare the prosecution of obscene pornography a criminal justice priority and urge your U.S. attorneys to bring prosecutions against the major producers and distributors of such material, end quote. This letter came in light of the Internet exponentially increasing the proliferation of porn, which, according to this letter, is, quote, especially harmful to youth who are being exposed to obscene pornography at exponentially younger ages. End quote. This letter set off a debate among conservative and libertarian voices about the role that the government should play in regulating porn. Several days later, the Dallas Morning News published a widely shared op-ed that was headlined, When sixth graders can access rape porn on their smartphones, school becomes toxic. No 11-year-old should have to deal with or even know about such things like this. And we want to discuss how easily accessible pornography has changed or not, how Christian parents and caretakers ought to educate kids about sex. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Mark Kelly, editor-in-chief. All right, Mark. Obviously, pornography in and of itself is a huge issue, but... I'd be interested in getting your gut reaction specifically about when it's hitting and being, you know, being in the face of kids and young people. It's obviously uh, shocking and horrifying, but it has been an increasing reality, as the intro said, for some years now. I think it's a tremendous challenge. I'm thinking, you know, I think about it in terms of my children with their children. What are their, how are they going to manage this? I mean, it's it's a very difficult time to be a parent. I think in terms of that. Things like this, I, I've had some conversations with my friends who work in youth ministry or are youth pastors about the conversations they're having with their students about this. I'm pretty sure I was part of youth groups that just kind of didn't acknowledge the existence of sex, which is interesting. <laughs> Place to be and clearly pretty impossible now, but I remember reading, I think, a pretty extensively reported piece in The Atlantic about, I want to say, middle schoolers who were um, trading nude images with each other, just how much of a thing that it had become. The New York Times also is doing a larger story about the effect that digital media is having on these types of issues. So like I was telling you yesterday, they did an in-depth piece about how people who were, or children who were the victims of child pornography are really having a huge fight to get their images off the internet. And then they did another piece more recently about how on a lot of gaming platforms, there is a opportunistic adults who are exploiting the children who play on these video gaming platforms as well and getting them to send really sexually explicit images. Yeah, there's all different types of ways that the technology that we're using, I guess, is being increasingly warped to 
harm young people. So I'm glad that we're going to be talking about this today. Who is our guest? Our guest is Stan Jones. He joined the Wheaton College faculty in the Department of Psychology in 1981 and served as provost from 1996 to 2016 during some of the college's most productive but also turbulent years in Wheaton's history. He is a nationally recognized expert on sexuality. His many books include Modern Psychotherapies, a Comprehensive Christian Appraisal, which I have not I have not read cover to cover, but I have popped in in many parts. It's a very good book. And then along with his wife, Brenna, How and When to Tell Your Kids About Sex, A Lifelong Approach to Shaping Your Child's Sexual Character. Welcome, Stan. Glad to be here, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Morgan. It's great to have you, Stan. It's nice to know that you've like made a career of making parents uncomfortable. You know? <laughs> That's right. I've worked hard at it. Yes, I have. <laughs> yeah. Pretty fun to do. You know, sometimes kids are the only ones who think they can do that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's where you have been. I dare I say for people who are not in this room, Mark did say that you retired. So you've been writing and working on this stuff for a number of years and I would like to know what is different about the world that we live in now with regards to sex. At least, at least some things are the same. People, people are this essentially the same. You know, God created us as real human beings, embodied beings, spiritual beings, sexual beings. These things are con- continuous. But the social realities around us have changed profoundly. And I'm 65 years old. I remember as a young youngster searching for pornography, and it was actually hard to find. It was, it was, it was. You had to pursue it diligently and in secret, <laughs> and, and and even then, it was hard to find. But now, pornography is actually out chasing us. It's it, it's pushed at us through digital medias, and so that's a profound difference. And with it has come, I think, some some profound shifts in how we think about ourselves. I think the move towards thinking about ourselves, what it means to be a person, has become disengaged from our bodies. And so this is part of what facilitates the spread of pornography, I think, is, is a sense that our bodies don't matter very much. And that they can be just objects of titillation rather than being things that are sacred and, and to be shared only with spouses and so forth. And so these are some of the undercurrents that I think are sweeping our children along in these in these times. Are there any what you would might call turning points that have happened in, I don't know, the past 50 years or so. I think, yes, the, the sexual revolution has been has had a profound effect. I, in some ways, I think the this, this sexual revolution is connected to the Enlightenment, which is, you know, this shift of, of view from the person is embedded in a religious network, a network of belief and faith to a, a self that's autonomous and self-defining. And the sexual revolution, I think, is a continuation of that to view the self as, some, as somebody that is not responsive to God's rules and standards, but rather is, is we can define our own moral standards and live according to our own desires. The, the shift of the self as somebody is def- who's defined by our, our belief in God and giving ourselves to God is instead somebody who's, a, who's defined by defiance of these such standards. These kind of, this kind of shift has really made a profound difference, I think, in our culture where we have, we have to unleash ourselves from social forces like religion and, and religious institutions in order to really find ourselves. That, that shift of finding the self by searching inward and by casting off these shackles of chains that, that bind us and turning inward is, a, is really a profound shift that is, has affected all of our children. And it's not just a move away from religion. It's a move away from any community that might help shape us or modify our behavior. That's exactly. The development of technology has been also a huge development as well. I think that's a major turning point when people can find pseudo-communities so easily on the internet. They can reach out and find these ephemeral communities of fragile identities that are self-defined and so forth. That becomes very appealing to think that you can understand who you are through such communities. When you use the phrase sexual revolution, do you mean that the one starting in the 60s or? Yes, and I think what we're, I mean the continuation of it even today in terms of even now, not just the break. Accelerated today. Accelerated yeah. today, the belief that the body hardly matters, that we can manipulate our bodies even, and we can ignore the gender binary and, and view it as a kaleidoscope of, of genders and so forth. Those are also so it, so it started with the boomers, and yeah. we'll take some responsibility for yes. it. 
<laughs> you guys have been alive the whole time. You know, no, some responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, okay, for people who didn't live through the sexual revolution, maybe you can kind of explain the before and after. Well, in many ways, I feel like I was a product of the before. So I, I grew up with a sense of, of sacredness, but also shame surrounding sexuality. And so the, there was a sense in which I was cultivated into believing that sex was somehow special and to be reserved for marriage. And so I, was, I felt guilty about trying to v- break those rules, which I did before I was a Christian and thankfully converted to Christ soon enough that I didn't get myself deeply in trouble. I think that the, the direction of things after that went pretty, south pretty fast. And so the, the shift to defiance of those rules and, and uh, the shift towards pursuing your own standards was, was, was really a profound shift. Is I hadn't thought about that in terms of the person living through it, but probably I would agree with Stan in terms of how I was raised. It was clear starting in, you know, junior high and high school that standards were changing rapidly around us. At the time I was growing up in this context, there was, there was, there was a broader shift in, in broader culture. I was growing up in, in suburban Texas where I think that we were 10 years, 10, 20 years behind the times. The mindset of the 60s generation was one of throwing off these shackles, throwing off these these constraints. That began to spread rather rapidly. And so I began to see rapid change quickly. And the credibility of the church's morality during this time just eroded thanks to the hypocrisy that we see in, in some parts of the church still still being evolving in its, in its revelations across Protestantism and Catholicism. Also by our inarticulateness about the, the sexual morality, we, we, we tend to shake our fingers and say, no, don't do this, but we don't have a good rationale. We don't have a good story to tell about why we ought to be preserving sex for marriage and why sex is sacred. I think that would probably be the characteristic of the late 50s, early 60s was there wasn't really a well thought out anthropology of what a human there being wasn't. is in That's God's right. eyes. That's right. It was more a no culture. These are things you don't do until you're married. That's right. Exactly. Which we all broke anyway, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, didn't do any good. The no culture didn't do all that much good. That's know. right. Just yeah. to give a little bit more historical background and context, that no culture that Mark just mentioned, was that also ignoring other ancient church teaching that had kind of given more holistic version or idea of what the human body should be seen as by the person? There was a broader sense in, in the history of the church of the, uh, marriage as a sacrament and having some deep symbolic meaning of representing the, the relationship of Christ to his church. And so when you look back to the medieval times where the Song of, the Song of Solomon was one of the most preached books in the Bible, and so there was a, there was a broad reverence for sex. I don't, I don't think it was necessarily well articulated as we, as we, I think we ought to be doing, working at it today. That heritage got lost in the Reformation, I think, and, and the, the, the Reformation kind of celebrated marriage, not in an articulate way. I think there was a reliance on just the, the rules not to do it, and the preservation of marriage is somehow sacred, but there wasn't a development of a, of a strong rationale for why, why marriage needed to be Yeah, preserved. I think what prompted us to force to think more deeply anthropologically was the rise of the gay rights movement. It forced us to think, okay, why exactly do we think homosexuality is a problem other than no? And it has forced a lot of people to do some really, what I think is some great and fresh and deep thinking about what is a human being. And I think one of the things, one of the things that's most important is emerging reflections is I'm trying to put it together in my own mind and my own hopefully projects for future writing is is to the understanding of human beings as embodied and human beings as being made in the image of God. And to realize that embodiment is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And to realize that God is, God is deeply relational and deeply a passionate being. The Reformation tradition tends to look at God as purely intellectual, but God, Jesus himself identifies God's first characteristic or first identity as being the father. And the father is the one who loves the son. And because he loves the son, he loves those who are united with the son. He loves his people, his children. He adopts us. And so throughout the New Testament, we're called the beloved of God. That idea of God's passionate love for us is related to our humanness and our humanness. We, we, our sexuality is our, is our human capacity to experience that, that same kind of passion and love and union that God experiences within the Trinity and experiences with us in, in eternal life. So the encouragement 
incarnation becomes a moment when the blessedness of the body becomes absolutely crucial. Absolutely right. Uh, it becomes clear to us that if God in Christ was willing to inhabit a body, he blesses it in a way that theologians are still trying to figure out what what what's going on and, here. And the, and the, the incarnation is bracket is sort of bookended on the front end by creation, where God makes makes us his bodies and declares us to be very good. And then in the resurrection of the body, we have the the, the final affirmation that the embodiment is is to be ours for for eternity. And so it, so embodiment is in a sense triple blessed by creation, by incarnation, and by resurrection. All right. Well, there's a lot of really interesting theological points to chew on there. The thing is. With these books that you've made, you've been forced to take some of this theology and make it super practical, yes. obviously, and even accessible to young people. What has been formative in you arriving in your beliefs about sex ed in particular? Well, thanks for asking that, Morgan. It was I grew up in a, an anomaly Christian family, and uh, I, I remember exactly three times when my my father tried to talk to me about sex. Once when I was twelve, a book appear, mysteriously appeared on my pillow. What boys need to know? <laughs> and, and never never got an explanation. Never, and, and I just I just I remember reading with the flashlight because I, I wanted to. Read Read it, but I knew I should be ashamed to read it. Then when I, when I was 16, I was cleaning out the garage and my father walked in and sort of looked like he was coughing up a hairball and said, uh, is there anything you want to know about sex? And I just said, no. And he, <laughs> he walked out. And the third time was literally 20 minutes before I got married. He asked me if there's anything I wanted to know. And so, so, so I, I didn't count myself as having a very good sex education growing up. From your parents, From at my least. Parents. But I'm curious, yeah. since we know that a lot of young people right now, right, are learning about sex via porn, exactly. through their peers, what were the things that actually taught you about sex then. Reading between the lines of jokes, it was porn. It was it was reading textbooks, reading encyclopedia articles, re- taking biology in high school and college. That, those were the places where I learned about sex, and I learned the rules in Christian in early Christian faith. But I didn't have a deep understanding about it. And I I naively assumed that people who grew up in, in Christian families were having having a different experience. So when I came to Wheaton, I started teaching classes in sexuality, and, and I tried to use it as a, just a, sort of a cold opener in class to help people make feel better about feel more open. I would ask, well, so how do, how was sexuality handled in your families of origin? And instead of hearing these glowing stories of wonderful Christian families handling it so well, heard horror story after horror story after, of silence and shame and so forth and so on. I thought, somebody's got to do better. And so so we, we that was when my wife and I, almost 30 years ago, resolved to try to put these books together. And our vision was for having having a lifelong developmental approach where parents could get over the hump of getting the words out on the table and have developmentally age-appropriate conversations with their kids where, where the kids, instead of feeling like they can't get knowledge from their parents and have to pursue it elsewhere, can rather look at their parents' as resources to honestly talk about what they need to know, and that thus the parents have the t- opportunity to shape their child's character around this. I mean, at the risk of psychoanalyzing lots of American Christian parents. <laughs> <laughs> it's your perfect right. <laughs> I'm curious, Dan, if you would be able to say, like, what are in your mind are like, the two or three big obstacles? Obviously, there's just the awkwardness that you might have with your children, exactly, exactly. right? That you kind of don't want to enter into that yeah. space. I would say it's reciprocated, right? Like kids are also awkward about this type of thing. But besides that, what are the other hiccups that you have to kind of coach parents through? The single biggest hiccup is unresolved shame and guilt about your own past. Hardly any of us have, have handled our, our sexuality in ways that we consider to be you know, perfect or anywhere near perfect. And so I think we're, parents are oftentimes terrified of being asked, well, what did you do when you were such and such an age? And the the, un, the, the unresolved hurt, guilt, shame from, from the past just serves to cause parents to just put it off and put it off and put it off. And I think there's also a secondary factor would probably be a false deference to experts. Society is teaching us that well, you shouldn't be talking about your kids unless you're an expert in biology and so forth and so on. When in fact, sex education is not, somewhat, is not primarily about education in biology. It's education in morality and character. It's the meaning of sexuality 
philosophy that we need to tell, talk to our kids about. Now, to get, to get to the meaning, you need to cover the biological basics somewhere along the way because otherwise it doesn't make sense. The, the biological basics are secondary to the moral, moral and spiritual and characterological meaning of sexuality, what it means in our lives. What is your belief about how anatomically correct people should be when they're talking about body parts with young children? We should be, I think we should use basically medical language. We should talk about penises and vaginas. I think we should do that from early on. You know, we used to play a game with our children when they're, when they're babies, you know, who made, what's this? This is a nose. Well, who made that nose? God made this nose. What's this? This is a belly button. Who made that belly button? God made the belly button. What's this? This is a vagina. Who made that vagina? God made the vagina. It's a part of our bodies and it ought to be recognized from the very beginning. And so I think using basic anatomical language, not in a salacious way, not in a, not in a graphic way, but in a, in a direct and f- forthright way. I think, again, you can't, you can't do, you can't go wrong being basically honest with your children and telling them the truth, giving, giving them what they need to know at the, at the right developmental age. How did you develop your actual philosophy? You talked a little bit about this idea of like age appropriate information yes. and so forth, but maybe spell out a little bit more particular how you developed sure. what you thought was age appropriate. Sure. We developed it actually because a wonderful, wonderful book fell into our hands, a book by Carolyn Nystrom called Before I Was Born. It was, it was a book that was written to explain basic facts of sexuality and sexual intercourse to kids that were in the age, age range of approximately six to nine years old. And I remember when I first saw this book, I thought, that's got to be way too young. But I thought it was written so beautifully. I thought, well, let's take it. Let's, let's read it to our daughter when she's seven. And we did. You know, you mentioned that, ha- that the, such conversations are always awkward for kids. Well, actually, they're not always awkward for kids. When, if parents would jump in and have the conversation. We had the conversation with our daughter, read this book, and, and she just said, oh, that's what it is. And I said, yes. And, and she it became a part of normal conversation. <laughs> and so it's a beautiful book. But we found out from Carolyn that, they told, that she had published this book in the early, late 70s, and it sold about a thousand copies and had gone out of print. And we thought, something, this, is, this is the right approach. So we, we actually decided to write a parent's guide book and then write a book for children that are younger than what she aimed at, which became the story of me, and then two, one for kids 9 to nine to 12-ish and 12 to 16-ish. What started out as one book, we, we incorporated Carolyn's book and built four of the books around it, a guidebook for parents and three other kids' books, and that became our book series. And so that, that's how we developed this idea of gradual, progressive, appropriate, age-appropriate conversations with your kids. You start on building truths about what it means, about the goodness of our bodies, the goodness of family, the goodness of God's Word. You eventually then talk about marriage and what it means to have children and so forth and so on. And then you begin to talk about sexual sexual intercourse and the, the rules that, that govern that and then build that into the context of relationships and so forth and so on and develop that as your, as your child ages. Clearly, there are some things that if you were a parent, I am not a parent, you would be listening to that and be like, wow, that is a lot to share with kids. So what were the most, what have been the most controversial things that, or that you found out later have provoked the most controversy? Parents assume that when you say talk about sex with your kids, that you're, you're always t- talking about the de- going into details about sexual intercourse. But that's, sex is so much more than that. Sex is what it means to be male and female. It's what it means to be in love. It's what it means to be a family and so forth and so on. And so you can talk about these things without getting into those details. The age at which to talk about sexual intercourse is, is itself controversial. You know, we we. Suggest suggest that you, this is something that parents ought to decide, but you ought to think about it introducing it somewhere between the age of six and, and nine or so. And the reason we suggest that, which seems early to many parents, is that kids are going to find out anyway. And so... Especially well, nowadays, yeah. Especially nowadays. And one of our one of our principles is as parents, you ought to be the first one to tell them the truth. Why wait till your kid to learn something wrong and develops wrong attitudes, wrong beliefs, wrong, wrong senses of uh, the emotional impact of this? Why not frame it in the right way and be the one who tells them the truth and thus communicate 
look, you can always come to me for as a, for a reality check for what you're hearing. Uh, we want to encourage parents to be the source of, of encouragement and trust to their kids. The first line of recourse, the first line of going for not verification and for truth rather than the last. And so by, by, by being ahead of the curve, by being the ones that, that gives them the first messages and the true messages and accurate messages, never lying to them, never never deceiving them, never withholding information that they really need, you, you become a reliable source of truth and a trusted source of truth. So I want to talk about something you brought up a couple minutes ago, which is shame. It sounds like your work has kind of been parallel to another phenomena that we've seen in the evangelical world, which is called purity culture. There's many people who have strong feeling who grew up in a place where they felt the way that Christian sexuality was presented to them with within a very like strict confines of legalism and ones that kind of really threatened and heaped a lot of shame on people who strayed outside of that legalism. They look back on that now with a lot of anger in many ways for the ways that it neither made them feel ashamed of their bodies or ashamed of feeling what may have been appropriate touch or even set very false expectations for what they should expect from sex one day. So I'm curious how you've wrestled with that idea. Clearly you have convictions about what sin looks like or what God's plan looks like for sexuality, but I don't think (laughs) that what you want to do is raise up another generation who then feels shame when they're talking to their children about this. We began writing about this. The books that actually came out in their first edition almost almost exactly 25 years ago now. And so we actually began, began writing about this back before there was much analysis of it. And we expressed two, we expressed our general support for the purity movement, that they're fundamentally right, that it's a good thing to save sex for marriage, and that's, that's a good thing. There's problems on, two, on both sides of it. One is that the purity movement tends to overpromise that, that sex is going to be explosively wonderful if you just save it for marriage. And then people are led to be disappointed sometimes because sex is part of human life and it has its fallen dimensions and it has, it has to be learned. You have to learn how to please each other and sex can be disappointing and, or funny or, mm-hmm. or you know. A range. It's complicated, it's, right? It's complicated, yeah. exactly. And on the other hand, there's there's this imposition of shame that your life is going to be destroyed if you've, if you've crossed from the rules. And so one of our principles in our book is that there is no such thing as anything that's going to destroy your life. God can always is always capable of capable of healing and redeeming anything. And so to over to overplay either the, the, the sex is going to be wonderful if you save it for marriage or to overplay that your life is going to be destroyed and you're going to be incapable of forming future relationships if you if you violate these rules, both of those are distortions of the truth. And so to I would say a third thing that we raised as a concern about the purity culture is the sense of coercion of kids into making pledges. Pledges are fine things, but they ought to be genuine and they ought to come from the heart. And if a child is moved, moved to make a pledge, that's a good thing, but they shouldn't be manipulated or coerced in group contexts. It's summer camps or, or rallies and stuff to make those those kind of pledges insincerely as part of a crowd. Let me, let's talk about the shame thing. I mean, if I may push back a little and ask a question about sure. and wonder if shame is really the biggest obstacle for parents talking to their kids. I, I'm trying to think, I did a very bad job at this, by the way, so I'll be the first <laughs> to admit that. Mark was one of the people who raised the students that were in your And for some reason, your books didn't come along in time for me to oh, do it right. Stan. Blaming Stan. It's his fault for waiting. <laughs> too long. No, but seriously, but I remember my awkwardness, but it wasn't shame. And I, I would like to do more thinking. Maybe maybe you've already done this, but there is just something really weird about talking about sex with anyone, A, even your spouse. Yes. I don't know why there's a different dimension when you're talking with your kids. So so the I don't recall. I mean, I recognized early on that I, I made some mistakes as a young man and I understood the complexity of sex and uh, 
I had a healthy view of it, but when I came to talking to my kids, it was just really super awkward. Well, I think you're picking up something something true there, Mark, in, in that I think that there's a sense of privacy about sex. Sex is meant to be an intimately personal act. It's meant to be the most intimate and profound act of giving between two individuals and only two individuals. And there's a sense in which when you go public about that, you're violating some of that sense of privacy and specialness. And so I think parents are right, are in a sense, rightly concerned when they're, when they're thinking, you know, I'm going to be talking to my kid about sex and they're going to be thinking, this is what my parents are doing right through that wall. <laughs> next year. You know, we wait, are and, thinking and, that. And, and, they, and they inevitably ask questions like, when do you do this? Did you do this yeah. last night? What did you do? And so forth and yeah. so on. And, and those, are, those are questions. Those are times when you preserve and your And then they run say, away, right? They, then they run away. Exactly. Yeah. When I first yeah. got the idea that this is a, the biological element, I thought, well, it's going to have to do with private... Does it happen in the bathroom? Because those things usually happen exactly. in the bathroom with those parts Kids of the body. All those, all those kinds of good questions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly right. So there is there's that there's natural, natural sense of specialness, I think. And, and so there there is a natural reluctance to talk about it. But it's one, I think, where for the sake of raising our kids to know what the truth is, we have to we have to go push past that. I constantly think back to the question of when did Jesus learn back learn about sex? And of course, we don't know. But he grew up in an agrarian culture where, where breeding of animals was very commonplace, a very important part of the economy. He grew up in a Context where there was very little privacy. There were no, there were no, there were no, you know, separate bedrooms. There were, you know, pe- people knew what was going on and so forth. And so people were having children right and left and so forth. So those are those those are the social realities. So I think it's highly unlikely that Jesus didn't learn about sex until he was sixteen. You know, so that is a, makes an interesting point in a in a world that's become moved away from an agrarian centric life to an urban life. I would think uh, being raised in an agrarian society, it would be much easier to just say to your son, "See what they're doing." Your mom and I One do that version of that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you. You say it's private. It was private and also not private, given my understanding, where many families like shared one room exactly as their house. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. That's there wasn't right. the same type that's of right. like not a mis- not a mystery that this is happening. Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. Even even the descriptions of weddings in the Bible, oftentimes there's somebody there's a pledge and then they go into the tent right there while everybody's standing around, and, and so you, you in a sense everybody yeah. knows what's happening. Yeah. So I think there was a custom in the Middle Ages too, uh, for a while, that someone had to observe the couple. They're on their first night to make sure it was consummated, yeah, which would be shocking, horrific. All right, Mark is going to verify that before we gossip about that time. We've mentioned some of the biggest mistakes. I'm wondering if there's um, any other things that you've seen that you've been, like, disappointed or frustrated with with regards to parenting and their assumptions about sex ed. A couple of things come to mind, Morgan. Thank you. One of one of them is simply that people don't realize that sex education is less about providing information than more about shaping your child's character. And so I think we think we tend to think about education as information, but sex education is about shaping them to be patient, shaping them to be caring, shaping them to be empathetic, shaping them to delay gratification. All these sort of character traits that we need to think about as the bedrock of what what it means to be well formed as a, as a moral human being. So that would be one thing that's that comes to mind. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the NIV Quest Study Bible. I spoke with Melinda Balma from the Zondervan Bible Department about the wealth of questions and answers available in this study Bible. I feel like the question-answer format encourages you just sort of on the whole to ask questions as you're reading. I agree, and I, I think that's the beautiful thing about the Quest is it trains the reader to start asking those questions. Because not every question can be answered in the space of a print Bible, you know, and we, we won't think of every question that every person on this earth has had or will ever have. But the amount of questions in here is rich enough to get you started. But then it trains you to, yes, approach the Bible with a curious mind. And I think that's so, so critical to really having a deep, rich experience with the text. 
Featuring over 7,000 study notes in an engaging question and answer format, the Quest Study Bible is now available in Zondervan's exclusive comfort print typeface for smooth reading. Learn more at queststudybible.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Okay, so you put these books out in the world 25 years ago. Have there been any significant tweaks to your philosophy or things that you've actually had to change as a result of this thing that we call the internet coming up during that time? <laughs> yes. Well, yes, we, we've had to deal with quite a number of things. And I didn't remember second, my second point, so let me just bring that, that in. Yeah. The, the, the second point would be that some of the most significant pushback we've gotten is from some conservative Christians who say that we ought to, we ought to use only biblical language when we talk about the, the, the realities of sex. And hmm. so we ought to talk about, you know, begot and was with child and so forth and so on and knew and lay with and not, not use any anatomical language and so forth and so on. So old English. So old English, yes, yes. And, and this is a very strange movement because when, when I talk to Old and New Testament scholars, they're actually t- quite taken with how earthy and, and direct the, the biblical language is. And if so if you take a careful look at uh, passages like in Ezekiel and Hosea and others, they're, they're oftentimes quite graphic in terms of what they describe. And so I think the Bible is, has a frankness and a freshness and an earthiness and a directness in its, in, its, in its dealing with these issues that has to be dealt with in terms of how we deal with this. So I'm sorry, back to your question. Yes. So we have to be much more on guard about guard about pornography and just this just, just distortion in general. I think the access of information is, is, is quite worrisome. I think parents need to do a better job of, of, of cultivating kids' awareness of these things and, and helping to protect them against addiction to pornography and so forth. You know, it's, it's, it's striking. A kid can see in one hour more sexual, more diverse sexual stimuli than an adult would have ever seen in a lifetime, just even 50 years ago. And this is, this is an amazing development and one that where the, the addictive powers of it are, are really quite, quite striking. And so guarding our kids against this this kind of thing is, is really a, a priority for us now, I think. How does your own psycho- training in psychology affect the work that you're doing? It's given it, uh, given it a sense of uh, the developmental trajectory of how, the kids, of how kids need to develop and grow, given us a sense of looking at, again, the formation of character as opposed to just providing information. My own thinking has evolved. I was trained originally as a cognitive behavioral therapist, but I've, I've really increasingly seen the shallowness of that view psychologically and, and instead viewing people as, as made in the image of God as, re, as relational beings. And we are beings who are made to bond and made to, to, to form relationships. Why don't you just back up a bit and talk about what, what you mean by cognitive 
yes. uh, behavioral psychology. In, in many ways, cognitive behavioral psychology believes looks at human beings as a collection and a conglomerate of ha- habits and attitudes and beliefs that can be, essentially be changed by by will or by practice. It's it's a, it's a pretty cold and impersonal view of the person, opposed to the psychodynamic approaches, which really regard relationships as being pr- primary, bonding being primary, the the the, the self as as a, as a real entity. As as I've pondered what it means to be made in the image of God, I come up against time and time again that, that we are we are embodied beings. We're made for relationships, and what it means to be a human being is that we're we're permeable and we're defined by our relationships. When a child is born, one of the first things they do is they begin copying the parents. They're, humans are actually gifted with what are called mirror neurons, where even within hours of being born, a child can can see see the mother, see a father, and can begin to in small ways imitate the parent. And it's that imitation that given forth, giving giving and receiving of imitation back and forth, and laughter and joy and love that that helps to form the self of the child. And, and the, the, then as the child grows, they they become capable of being increasingly formed by the relationships that they're embedded in and the network of relationships that they're embedded in. And this is how, this is what I think what it means is, is the opening up of, of what it means to be related to our relationship to God. So God made us so that we can have union with him eventually. Uh, so I've been pondering for a long time that we're taught that in, in, in marital union, two, two people become one flesh. And if we're made in, in the image of the Trinity, the Trinity is a community in union and human beings have the capacity to be a community in union. And uh, that mirrors the fact that we can, that we can then unite with God, and, and so we can we can transcend ourselves. We're we're more than just ourselves, our self-contained selves. We're selves connected to others, including connected to God. I'm curious. I'm going to bring up some conversations that I see happening among my own Christian peers, and how you think that better conversations when we're children can kind of help us in the conversations now. So one thing that we know that's just happening in our culture at large is that an increasing number of people are not getting married. There does seem to at least be a little bit more discussion um, among people who are single and in the church about wrestling with what the ramifications of some of the teachings that they learned. You know, you went, you talked about earlier about not setting false expectations for what sex will be like, but sometimes there is still that expectation that like, oh, I will actually get to have sex on a regular basis that people end up believing. And of course, that is extremely easily available if you're a single person these days. It just, there's no guarantee that that's necessarily going to come in a marriage context. So I'm curious, what is a better conversation that we can have, again, when people are children or when when you're a kid, to wrestle with some of the realities when you're an adult and you're not married? I'm not sure if I exactly thought of it that way, Morgan, so I'm just, you have to run Take, on the fly. Just, so, you know, yeah. wing it. It's okay. Wing it. yes. You have 30 years of experience. <laughs> One of the things to say is that, yes, sex is available, but what, do, what does sex mean ultimately? And what do we want from sex? And if sex, if sex is meant to build union between two people, then the availability of occasional sex when you want gratification is to presume that sex can be reduced to something that's just an urge. It's an itch to be scratched. It's an urge to be indulged from time to time because you need to have it met. And I think sexuality is much more than that. It's much more much more profound that our sex, our sexual natures are meant to be the bridge by which two people, are, two people's lives are united. It's not the only bridge. It's the, you know, marriage is much more than just sex, sexual intercourse. Marriage is the union of lives and the, the giving of oneself to one another, the submission of one to each other, of each to, to the other. And those things help to form the self. I, I feel so blessed that I got married actually at age 21 and my wife was 20. We were we were ch- children by today's standards in the middle of college. We got married and I feel like we grew up together. But in doing so, we were so blessed to be able to contribute to forming each other's character. And one of the ways in which the older generation has failed the younger generation is by the failure of our marriages. We've we've not been, we've not been committed. We've not been dedicated to, to the formation, to sacrifice for each other. And so we've hurt a, the next generation who has 
have reason to worry about, will, will marriage last for me? Will it, will it be profitable for me? Will it be, will it, will it, will it be, will it be a blessing and not a curse to me? And so we give our kids pause about that. And then we, and then we, t- then they go out in a sense paralyzed about making that decision. And I hope that we have some way to recover that as we move forward into the next generation to be able to encourage kids that, that marriage is an experiment worth taking, but we have to enter it with a sense of humility and a sense of utter dedication to, to sacrifice to each other, to make the marriage work, to giving to each other. And we have to be the kinds of people who are trustworthy ourselves. I think the, the onus is on us to be people who are willing to give to ourselves, to be formed by the other, to really genuinely sacrifice for the other. That those are the ideals that I think marriage really is based on. And, and we need to move forward with, with that kind of, on that kind of basis. Part of the answer to that question too, is to recognize that sexual fulfillment is not the epitome of what it means to be a human being. The Catholics have had a better stab at this than Protestants, where in a typical Protestant church, to grow up and mature as a human being, you have to get married and have a family. Whereas Not to mention, in, overwhelmingly, the church leaders are also married. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So right. In the Catholic Church, is this huge tradition of celibacy that is That's blessed exactly right. and lauded and praised. We are reminded that Jesus was not married and lived hopefully a fulfilling life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the point is, I think one of the, one of the things we need to do a better job of teaching is the, is the blessedness and the goodness of the, of the life, the single life, which can be an extraordinarily important way to serve God. As I said, I think we don't do a great job of that in Protestantism. I think that's exactly right. In in the in the Protestant Reformation, we have this this move this rejection of marital clerical celibacy, and in doing so, we sort of overframe marriage as being somehow vital, and so we lose a lose a tradition of support of celibacy. And celibacy is every uh, the celibate individual is every bit as much in the image of God as the married couple. The married couple has the, the opportunity for sexual union, which mirrors one one aspect of God. But the single celibate who's who's given themselves single single heartedly to God is is also someone who's mirroring the the nature of Christ, and thus mirroring every bit as, as imaging God every bit as much powerfully as the as the married couple is. And so both need to be blessed. And, and the churches tend to focus on the family to the ex, to the exclusion of the focusing on the single and providing a context. And we need to just not, we didn't need, you know, in some in so many Protestant churches, the singles group is, is really a matchup group. It's a, it's a pre-marriage group. It's not, it's not a, truly a support community. And, and we need to find out how to have our nuclear families become more permeable to, to single people, to be true communities where the, the support's singleness and, and uh, by, by integrating those into our into our broader, more extended families. I want to talk about another fuzzy concept, consent. That is <laughs> definitely when I think of the culture's larger, at least named, yes. maybe not always practiced, but named sexual ethic. That is the word that I would say best sums up the, pro, you know, the, the kind of approach that people are encouraged to take. So essentially... Everything is permissible if it is if it's yeah if there's a mutuality there exactly, exactly. to the extent that that is actually possible to see through. I'm wondering where do you see that um, Christian sex ed can affirm that, and where do you think it can also push it further? That's great. We have to really affirm and really celebrate consent. I think consent was one of the revolutions that that came with the early church overthrowing the Roman sexual ethic. The, the Roman sexual ethic was one of of ownership of the of the male over basically the free the free male in the in the Roman society basically owned everybody else. So women were chattel, slaves were chattel, uh, and so forth and so on. And they had sexual rights over just about anybody they wanted to have sexual rights over. The Christian faith came along and said, no, every person has the right to make their own mind before God. You you, you have to have give your voluntary consent. And so consent was, was built into the sexual revolution of the early church. And I think it's unfortunate that we've forgotten, that our contemporary culture has forgotten that that's consent for the purpose of preservation of the right moral choices of the individual. And so the problem has become now that consent is 
the only criterion that is involved, and or sometimes it's paired with authenticity, which I think is also part of part of the early church. The the reason that the church wanted to preserve sex for marriage was because it, they they recognized that sex is is a time when you're in in the ideal case you're giving your whole self authentically to the other person voluntarily. You're giving part of your true self to that person. You cut those parts apart from their theological roots in marriage, and you say, now, well, as long as I'm being authentic and being real with my feelings, and as long as I'm giving my consent, that's all I need to do is if I feel it in the moment. But that's not the Christian vision of sexuality. The Christian vision of sexuality is one that's more deliberate and rooted in a, a permanent bond between two individuals who have committed their lives to becoming one over time. I, I think it is just an interesting concept that feels like, duh, of course you should get consent. And also it doesn't feel robust enough to actually kind of talk about how we can actually care for each other in a very vulnerable and fragile place a lot of times, which is, I think that would probably be my critique is surely we have something more <laughs> to say, you know, it, it, it kind of reminds me of when people, I, I feel like 10, 15 years ago, there was a lot of buzz around the word tolerance. I The best critiques that I read about tolerance was like, that's the best we can do. Exactly, exactly <laughs> you know, right. like that's the best we can hope exactly. for when we're in a space with exactly. like lots of different people or in consent. That's the best we can hope for, you know, when it comes to a sexual relationship with someone else. The Me Too movement has shown convincingly that we still need to reinforce the concept of consent. There's way, way too much violation of consent already and continuing. And so especially with young men today, who, who you know still have a tendency to bounce outside of boundaries of behavior? We need to we need to push push the importance of consent. But it's more than consent. It's consent. We're, we're consenting not just the other, but we ought to be ought to be worrying about God's consent to what we're doing. And so as we submit ourselves to God, we're asking what what would you how would you direct my behavior? How would you direct my actions, Lord? So I want to specifically talk about sex ed and boys for a second. I wish I remembered the specific article that I read, but a couple of years ago, I mean, for lack of to not discredit it, but just to kind of put under genre. I feel like there's a certain level of like alarmist pieces about what porn is having on young people. So this particular article was under this and it was profiling a group of, I want to say, tweens and young teens. They were all boys who were watching a lot of porn. And the porn that they were watching, of course, was told from an extremely male perspective in that that is how they were learning about what sex should be like to please them. So what are the ways that you encourage parents to kind of push back against that? I mean, especially because <laughs> I feel like it's a cat and mouse game with regards to parents and their kid to the extent that they can control these devices and so forth. But obviously you are going to be inculcated and have your views shaped by the pornography that you're watching in addition to whatever your parents are also teaching. This is a place where we, we really push the idea of inoculation, Morgan. We, we push the idea that, you know, you know what your kids are going to be exposed to and get it out on the table ahead of time and prepare your kids of what they're going to expose, what they're going to be exposed to, in a sense, predict it and, and, and prescribe some reactions to it. So warn your, warn your children, especially warn your young boys that you're going to see porn, the vast majority of porn is told from a misogynistic, male-controlled, male-dominance, consumerist, objectivist sort of perspective, where women are women are reduced reduced to the to the servants of, of men. That's appalling, and, and I think to say to, to label that and to say to say to your kids, look, sex sex in marriage is meant to be a, 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 a true giving of the one to the other, and it's 100% of the husband giving to the woman, and 100% of the woman giving to the husband, and giving to each other in love, where you sacrifice for the other and and give to the other to give to each other's joy, and these are. 
this is not using the other person ever. It's not. It's 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 always given for the for the purpose of something higher than yourselves. To say the, the but you're going to see out there these these images that that appeal to our base selfishness, that appeal to to the worst parts of us, that appeal to the the, the part of us who wants to dominate or use other people. You you don't have to go into graphic detail, but you can say that this is this is how these stories are told, and and the, you will you will be pushed towards believing this. You have to I think warn your children away from it, and, and they they have to be able to exercise the self control to walk away from it, and you have to also help them to how to, to know how to sound alarms that they've, they're they losing control over it and that they need help to back, back away from it. So Yeah, I, I feel like I've seen or I've just read article after article where parents are in disbelief. Yes, absolutely. You know, and again, I'm not a parent and I know that these people are people who have lived many of the life experiences that I have had. So clearly you don't necessarily assume that you're ignorant about these things. But over and over again, I mentioned that New York Times series at the beginning, this particular one about how kids were being groomed on some of these video game platforms. It was very stunning to the parents that that was happening and they kind of these inherently are not pornography. trusted. These are not pornography platforms. These are platforms simply for gamers to communicate with each other what's mm-hmm. happening in Fortnite and, exactly. and Minecraft and so forth mm-hmm. and so on. To me, they're a big source of camaraderie for people too. They are. They you are. know, and, and I, I feel like with all of these things, what makes it so upsetting, right, is you take a place that's supposed to be a place about friendship and enjoying other people and yeah, having a great time on that platform with each other, right? And people exploit that trust. I think one stance that I've found, if I'd like to get Stan's view of this is when I have uh, had a conversation with a young man about an incident, he's an incident of pornography as a prayer minister or a father, I often say, believe me, I get it. And I, ever since I've been a teenager, I have struggled with this as well. It's not an easy thing to defeat. And just because you're married doesn't mean you're going to defeat it. And just because you're 60 doesn't mean you're going to defeat it. It'll be a constant temptation and you'll fall sometimes and you need to confess that and move on. But I think the world we live in now, it's say it's almost impossible for most men not to, not to have to confess at times, okay, that wasn't a good day. That wasn't a good day. A way to spend my evening. That was really bad. That's right. So, That's right. So. It's a very common problem. That's right. No, I would agree with you, Mark, to the extent that you tell people you don't set false hopes that one day you're just going to, it's going to be all gone. Yeah. You'll have exactly. completely defeated it. Exactly. And then when we were talking earlier about shame, they're by magnifying people's shame when they're like, well, everyone else has defeated it, but I can't, or I've relapsed and, and I, they don't want to even want to talk about it anymore. Long ago, I saw, I saw a film. I don't remember the name of the film anymore, but I saw, saw a film about life in a monastery and they asked the monks, what do you do? And they said, my life is I fall down, I get up, I fall down, I get up. And that is, that is life. You fall down. Thank God we worship a, worship a, a redeemer who is, is always willing to save us, always willing to forgive us and always willing to go back to the task of healing us. You know, the one area where I am curious if Christian sex ed will eventually have to address this too is that last year, I feel like everything I learned about sex is from the Atlantic. Thank you, Atlantic, <laughs> yes, for existing. Yes. We talk about a lot at CT, so I'm assuming yes. it's a CT sanctioned place to learn about sex. But they did a really intense article. It actually came out last year called The, the Sex Recession. Yes. And you may have seen it. It was a piece that talked about how young people, I think they, of the pe- young people that had been surveyed, 25% had actually not had sex in the past year, which was a pretty astonishing number, according to them. I think for people who may hold more traditional convictions on sex, it's, oh, is our teaching finally, you know, sinking into these people? And they spun that figure around to say, no, this is actually a proxy for how we're viewing people actually getting out and 
meeting with other people and spending time outside. And when we're talking about this type of thing, this doesn't preclude masturbation. And so what ends up happening, this article kind of talked about is you had a lot of people with social anxiety that had grown up watching a lot of porn, masturbating at home, had really talked themselves out of actually wanting to have human interaction. Exactly. I'm I'm just curious, you know, will Christian sex ed have to kind of deal with that, that there are going to be people whose tendency is to withdraw? I think we're already there. We already have to deal with that because, you know, it's, it's in the same way that we're tempted to always constantly just to substitute nutritious food for fluff and and stuff that's 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 had all the nutrients drawn out of it. In the same way, we're we're drawn towards this this pseudo the pseudo intimacy of pornography and fantasy and so forth and so on. And so you're absolutely right that the the sex recession is real. You know, the sex sexual revolution was supposed to produce you know much more enjoyment of sex. And the the statistics are I think that I think that in Britain at least the average average number of time people were having sex a month was five times a month thirty years ago, four times a month. 15 years ago and three times a month in the last five years. And so this is, it's going down. And I think it's because of isolation. With isolation, you have increased loneliness, depression, deaths by deaths of despair and, and drug addiction and so forth and so on, suicide. The, all these all these statistics are piling up about the, these difficulties and we have, to, we have to deal with these directly and cast a vision for our kids that, that they need to be engaged in relationships, in whether they're celibate and, and pursuing relationships that are that are non-sexual or are married and sexual relationships and rich friendships as well. We've got to pursue relationships because life Life is to be found in relationships where where we live out the reality of the gospel in in one on one to one and group contexts. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes, friendship is a good anecdote. Yeah, to a lot that's of her specialty in life. That's her spiritual gift. Morgan's spiritual gift that's is great. friendship. Being right. Mark's friend. In yeah, really, because there are very few people that that's actually are willing calling. to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm blessed. What can I say? Well, is there anything else that you would like to add, or that you felt that yeah, maybe we should give them more time to? I would just say to, to parents who are listening out there that, that the the importance importance of engaging this topic with your children, no matter what approach you take, just get started. Get started. Become a become a person who is open to having this conversation with your children and pursue whatever resources you need to find to to get that to happen. All right. I'm sure lots of people have reactions and responses to stuff that Stan said. If you'd like to, you can give us feedback. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com or you can leave it on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now's the time of the show that we remind you to subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. I'm sure most of you have done so by now. But if you haven't... And you've already sent gift, gift subscriptions to friends and relatives. Because I hope it so. is that time of the year. Yes. But just in case you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> we have a really interesting, somewhat quick to listen topic in our JanFeb cover story. Yeah, we might have to do a quick to listen. Well, you might have to now that I'm retiring, but the cover story is the hidden cost of tax exemption. And it's an argument made as to why churches might not want to champion tax exemption. Now, I, I don't happen to agree with that article. It's conclusion. I think there are social and political reasons why the state should give the churches tax exemption. And we do have a, we do have a sidebar in that piece that makes that argument. But I did think it was a really interesting argument and should be thought about by Christians. So when I, Andy Olson, our managing editor said that was going to be the cover story, I thought that's great. That's going to give people a lot to think about. About because that issue is going to keep on coming up in our legislatures time and again over the next 10 to 20 years, and we need to think more deeply about it. I mean, I'm intrigued. Now I want to know. So <laughs> exactly. the reason why is because they feel like it is missing the point? I well, more- I think it, there's lots of reasons. The reasons 
afford, there are statistical, there's lots of statistics to suggest how much social welfare churches do in a society that we simply overlook. And it's a tremendous boon to society to help churches with their finances so they can continue to feed the poor and reach out to the needy. But, but, there, are re- but there are reasons not to because now all of a sudden when the state, when the state gives you a gift, it's going to expect something in return. And the church will lose some of its freedoms because of that. Are they worth giving up? It actually you know? reminds me of different religious colleges that have rejected federal funds. Yeah. Whatever. We could obviously do a whole episode on this. Yeah. It's super interesting. All right. If you want to read it, you should read it. Become a subscriber. Go to orderct.com slash podcast. That's orderct.com slash podcast. You can become a subscriber there. That will allow you to read the article online or in print if you decide to get a copy of it. All right. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments. Everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy recently. Mark, please go ahead. Well, I've been reminded the last few months that I am an embodied person. When one gets older, one every morning one wakes up realizing one has a body <laughs> because <laughs> one is sore. And I've been battling rotator cuff in both shoulders and groin and hamstring pulls. And bad sleep too. So I finally broke down and got an appointment with a physical therapist. And these women are wonderful. I'm just in love with both of Mark, them. Mark, you weren't going to physical therapy? No. <laughs> okay, whatever. Well, the day I couldn't lift my leg to put it into the car without, without actually grabbing my pant leg and lifting my leg up, I thought, okay, this is probably... A pro- this is not normal. I should probably go see a doctor. Anyway, the log, the story is the physical therapists are just wonderful, wonderful human beings, creations of God, and I bless them because. So I've been working with them, and this last weekend, I actually worked out at the gym, and then I came home and did work all day long. I still had my typical aches and pains for a man my age, but it was like. I think I'm getting better. Wow. <laughs> About to retire. And, and when I was thinking, is this, is my retirement going to be just this mm. solid aches and pains and I can't do anything because it hurts so much? That was very, that was a discouraging thought. I will resist the urge to laugh at you for waiting that long. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can, you can mock me along with my wife who says, you know, you should have seen a doctor earlier. We're just happy that you feel better. Yeah. So we're getting there. Still a ways to go, but it's a small thing like that that's such a blessing. You will live thank on God for that. after this podcast is over in the form of your newsletter. Yeah, so the newsletter will continue, the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report, which you can find at ChristianityToday.com. We have some 20,000 subscribers who like to read what I have to say about links that I link to in the piece, in the, uh, in the weekly newsletter. So if you think you might be interested in that, check out a sample issue online and then subscribe. All right, Stan. I would mention two things that I'm th- really thankful for. One is uh, in the context of going off what Mark said, I'm battling quite a number of chronic chronic illnesses. And so I'm great, just grateful for quality medical care. I just reminded a time and again of caring doctors who are competent in their areas of specialty. And that's a wonderful gift. Risk of being self-serving. The second thing I want to say I'm g- grateful for is our the, the com- combined sales of our books in the God's Design for Sex Education series have now passed 1.3 million copies oh my over gosh. 25 years. Well, I've seen them on the bookshelf in my children's home. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're, one, they're one, of the, one of the groups that's helping this helping this happen. So we're really grateful. And so they've just come out in the third edition and actually it's online even, it's hard to tell the the second edition from the third edition. So if you want to get the new edition that has more up-to-date information and so forth, go to our website, christiansexed.com and you'll be able to see a picture of the books and links to go directly to buy all five of the books. There hopefully will be a resource to another generation of parents. That is a great website name. I'm sure lots of people just find it. Googling that exact thing. Christiansexed.com, yes. All right. Very cool. My precious moment this week is that I had a friend who worked here for a while who sang at the Christmas concert that is at Moody Church, which is in downtown Chicago. And every year she would invite me to come see her sing. 
And every year I had plans, except this year when she's not in it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So I went and it was as good as advertised. It was absolutely terrific. The arrangements of the songs felt fresh and interesting. You know, when you hear Christmas carols all the time, you can sometimes be like, okay, we're going to sing it. But they were all interesting. They were good mashups. The extra like visualizations and the way these lights was beautiful. It was free, which is, I mean, I would have paid money to go see it. It was fantastic. And I just like really love good Christmas music. And it's great to live in a city where you can just walk into a church and hear that type of thing. I really like it. So I was so happy to finally go to that. If people know of any other Christmas concerts in Chicagoland, you can tell me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Morgan Lee, and by Matt Linder. The transcript of this podcast is made available by Bumi Ashola. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast, you can find it there. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We truly appreciate it. And if you want to get a subscription to the magazine, it's at orderct.com slash podcast. We will see you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.